the end of our series from Psalm 23, where we've been looking at what God's Word has to say about how God has a solution for the things that stress us out in our lives. And you know, certainly one of the things that, that causes some consternation in our lives is when we think about the future. What does the future hold for us? You know, I, I, was, I was doing some thinking this week, and it always hurts my head when I think, but I was doing some thinking this week, and, you know, I think one of the consequences of the, the stock market and finan- crash of 2008 and the financial crisis and all that kind of stuff that went with it was that for a nation whose history has always been governed by the fulfillment of its potential future, I mean, America has always been driving for what it could become and, and what people could do and the, and the things they could invent and the money they could make and the businesses they could create. We've always been driven by our future. For the first time, it really began to dawn on people that the future that we hand off to our children and our grandchildren may not be as bright as the future that we inherited from our own parents and grandparents. We think it of the... The, the mounting national debt and all the other kinds of costs and we, and we, and we see the drying up of jobs and all that. And, and we, we're just not sure the future is going to be any better than the past. In fact, it may not be as bright as it was in the past. So as we struggle with this issue of what the future holds for us, it really kind of taps into a nerve of the place where we live all the time, do we not? I mean, most of us, we think about the future. There's sometimes when we think about the future, like we're getting ready to have a baby, right? Annika, she's ready. She, she'd love for that to be past history at this point, wouldn't you? You know, getting right on the, on the verge. You know, but we, we get into this place where we're, we're thinking about all that the future could hold, all the good stuff that could happen, all the opportunities and potential that could be fulfilled in it. And it brings a spirit of joy, kind of a lift to us. And then we have those moments when we, yeah, we think about all the things that could go wrong, you know? Especially those of you who got little, little, little kids saying, how much is college going to cost when my kids get there? You know, and, and there's a lot of things about the future that, that terrify us. And one of the reasons why the future is on our minds and our hearts is that we're going to spend the rest of our lives in the future, are we not? And so we should be thinking about the future. In fact, one would say that maturity and wisdom is making sure that we're ready for the future. Does God care about the future? It's interesting. I think I could tell you that I think one of God's primary hobbies, if God has a hobby, you know, one of God's primary hobbies or passions is the future. God is, is all wrapped in his future. I mean, before he created the world, he had a plan for all of its future, the Scripture tells us. So before he started... He'd already figured out the finish and all the stuff that goes in between. God is concerned about his redemptive history, the way God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading through the world, and, and God watches over that future as it grows. God's concerned about the future of his creation and of his creatures, you and I. He's concerned about every single one of ours futures. And what's interesting is God loves to make promises about the future. And he's made lots of promises. Some of them aren't so great. If you go and read in like Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and taken, you know, the fruit that came from the forbidden tree in the garden, God made some, some promises. He said to the serpent, he says, you're going to go on the ground 
And for the rest of your life, the the humans are going to be kind of stepping on you. And that promise has come true. He said to Eve, you and all the women who come after you, childbirth is not going to be fun anymore. And at least from what my wife tells me, that's come true. And then he said to Adam, he said, you're going you're gonna to make a living from the ground, but it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to sweat and toil at it, and you're going to grow more weeds and thorns and thistles than you are good stuff, but that's just the way it's going to go. And most of us feel like we toil all the way through our lives to somehow keep up. God makes promises, but sometimes he makes great promises. Like when he said to Noah, he said, you see that rainbow? That's a symbol to you that I'm never going to wipe out mankind again by a flood. Never going to do that ever again. That's a promise I'm making to you. Or he said to Abraham, he said, you know, I I know you're you're married right now. You don't have any children, but I'm going to make your descendants like the sand on the seashore. They're going to be beyond number. And you are going to be the father of a nation. And it's, going to be, and, you're, and it's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And God kept his promise. He told David that, that you know, he was going to bring a, 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 a king through his lineage that was going to sit on his throne forever. And he did that in Jesus Christ. God made promises about the Messiah in many places, in Isaiah and others, in, in Micah, and Micah, and he kept all of those. He makes promises about the future. You know, what's still yet to happen. And we read about those in Daniel and in the Apostle John's book that we call Revelation. And we see Jesus teaching about that. There's, there's just all kinds of promises that God makes because God is really interested and passionate about the future. And He's passionate about our future. Unfortunately for many of us, when we go to the Word of God and we start reading about the future we sometimes find it less than satisfying. And I think a lot of that is because we go to the, to the Scriptures and we kind of want it to be like a crystal ball. You know, should I invest in, you know, Ford? Is it going to go up or not? You know, we're, we're looking for those kind of factual kind of answers. It's not going to give us that stuff. God's already said, I'm not going to tell you that stuff. I'm not even going to tell you when I'm going to come back. That's, that's not my plan. God doesn't want us to live by facts. He wants us to live by faith. Now, he gives us a lot of facts to support that faith, a lot of truth to support that faith, but he's not out to tell you, well, this is what the lottery number is going to be on March 18th, so everybody go back. That's not, that's not his agenda. But God does tell us everything that we need to know to be able to live our lives with assurance about the future. We ask all kinds of questions about the future. High school kids right now are asking, where am I going to work this summer? College kids are asking those questions. Kids who are graduating from high school and college are asking, what am I going to do next? Is it more school? Is it a job? Is it the military? What am I going to do? We wrestle with all kinds of questions. We're always asking questions about the future. And it creates stress in us because it creates uncertainty. Does God's word have anything to say to us about his antidote for the stress that we experience about the future? And I'm going to share with you from this final verse of Psalm 23. One that's probably the capstone of this passage. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Psalm 23 with me. 
If, if you don't have a Bible with you, we encourage you to grab one of the pew Bibles that's there. And you're going to find our text today on page 465 in those Bibles, the black hardbound Bibles that are there. Many of you have been memorizing this passage as a part of our series. You made a commitment to do so, and, and, so, um, and, and you may have memorized it in different versions. Mine is, my, mine is really kind of a mix of versions when I, when I actually quote Psalm 23, but it's what really speaks to me. But let me read the whole passage for us, and then we'll focus specifically on verse 6. God said through King David, the Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. Or from a different translation, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores or He renews my life, my soul. He leads me along the right paths, or He leads me along the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger or evil. For you're with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Well, let me quote it from a different translation. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Verse 6 is, is in many ways just a, a very simple, single verse summary of what God promises to us who are, who are His children by faith. In Jesus Christ. He says, when you think about the future, here are the things that you can bank on. Here are the things that you can count on. Here are the things that you can build your life around. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Actually, some of the translations say, and I will return to the house of the Lord forever. I believe in this passage that God tells us what he's going to do in the future, who he's going to be in the future, and because of that, where, what our destination is related to our future. Now let's unpack this just a little bit, one piece at a time. God starts by telling us what he's going to do. Surely goodness and mercy, this, this phrase goodness and mercy in this particular state is kind of like a, a personification of God. It's like a nickname for God. You know, when my kids were, kids were, were little, they went to a, a child care provider. Her name was Avis Kingsbury, a, a sweet Christian grandmother. Our kids called her Honey. You know, that was the phrase that they called her Honey. I don't know why that happened, but that's just what they started calling her. And uh, so it, it actually stuck with us. We still call her Honey as well when we get a chance to see her, you know. And this is kind of like a, a nickname for God. It's a personification of God. Surely goodness and mercy. Surely God will follow me. The verb underneath there in, in, the, in the Hebrew is actually the word pursue. 
It could be used of an army that's chasing, pursuing another army that's in retreat. It's like God's chasing after us. God's following. He's pursuing us. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. How long? Till the end of this week? Till the end of next week? Till I hit 50? Which is very soon. All the days of my life. God tells us that what he's going to do is that he's going to pursue after us all the days of our lives. When you and I wake up in the morning, we can remind ourselves, we can put it on our bathroom mirror where we stumble to, to brush our teeth and kind of get the day started. We can put it, God's after me. God's after me. I mean, it is a fact from Scripture, that every single day of our lives, God is chasing after us to enter into a deeper relationship with us. He's on the hunt. He's on the prowl. He's looking for you every single day of your life and my life. I mean, we can bank on it. He's going to be there. To, To give you some examples, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Luke chapter 15. And in it, Jesus tells three powerful parables that speak to the pursuing nature of God. He starts starts out, first of all, with a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep. And at the end of the day, and I'm going to embellish here a little bit, he's got, he's got all the sheep in the, in the pen, you know, and they're locked up for the night, and et cetera, and he's counting them. One, two, three, four, ninety-nine. You know, maybe they moved a little bit. I'll count them again. One, two, three, four, ninety-nine. I'm missing one. So he locks the gate, he secures it, he grabs his lantern, he gets his staff, and he goes out and he hunts for as long as he needs to until he finds the sheep. And then he brings the sheep back and he places it in the fold. And there's great joy. And Jesus in the parable says, there's more rejoicing in, in heaven over one lost sheep than the 99 that were... God pursues, he follows, he searches for, he finds. The next parable he tells is about a woman who's got... All of her life savings, probably, in ten coins. And every once in a while, she pulls them out to count them, and, and one of them's missing. She's only got nine. The Scripture says she, she puts everything on hold, puts the nine away, and she turns her house upside down. She sweeps it. She's done shaking out. The, she even dares to take the cushions out of the couch to see what's fallen in there. You know, I don't know if you guys have that experience. They're always really clean at my house. Am I in trouble now? I'm glad I brought my own car. All right. You know, when she finds it, she said she calls all of her friends. She celebrates. It's a picture of God celebrating because he, he searches, he hunts for, and he finds that which is lost. He's pursuing. He's following after us. He's chasing us, calling us back into the fold with him. And then he tells probably what is the most famous of the parables, maybe of all the parables, but certainly in, in, in Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the younger son, he's, he's looking at his future, and he says, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of future here. You know, my brother's going to get two-thirds of it. I'm always going to be kind of a minority partner. I'm not going to have any control or whatever. I, I don't like this scenario at all. And, and he wants out. He feels like he's boxed in. There's no freedom. That, that everybody's kind of telling him what he has to do and what's best for him, and, and he wants out. So he goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, just give me my third of the inheritance. I want to go. And the father, in an act of stupidity, but in the symbol of the way that God grants us liberty. God allows us to take the inheritance of the image of God that he's placed within us. 
And he allows us to wander way away. And this young son, he takes his inheritance and he goes off to a far country. And the scripture says while he's there, as long as the, as the money lasts, he's the king of the town. He's got all the friends in the world. And when his money runs out, nobody cares about him anymore. And here's the Jewish guy who has to settle for the, the messiest, the dirtiest job. You know, you see that show, the dirtiest job of working in the hog farm, throwing out the slop to the pigs and saying to himself, I wish I could eat that stuff because I'm starving. And then he comes to his senses and says, you know what? Even my father's servants have it a lot better than this. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to tell my dad that I was a fool, that I was an idiot, that I was a moron. I don't deserve to be a son anymore, but just hire me back as one of your slaves. Where's the contract? I'll sign up. And as he's headed back and he's rehearsing his speech, Jesus pictures the father standing out in the hill. And he sees his son from a long way off. And he runs to him. You know, and, and Jewish men don't run. It's against their culture. It's against their history. It was it's just something you didn't do. And his father, so, well, he runs. He pursues his son and embraces him and brings him back into the family. This is the kind of thing that God says. This is who God says he's going to be in our lives. God is going to chase after us to seek to bring us back into the fold and to enter into this deep relationship with us. And he's chasing us whether we are the most dedicated believer or whether we are a skeptic or a doubter or a disbeliever. God is chasing after us to bring us into relationship with himself. You don't believe me? Just go read John 16, verses 8 through 13, where Jesus talks about the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, you're better off if I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send you the the counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to convict this, the world concerning sin and judgment and righteousness. He's going to be working on your heart every single day to show you what's true, what's real, what's matter, what's wrong, what's evil, what's going to destroy you. He's going to show you all that stuff. And then when you're ready to turn, he's going to guide you into all truth. So that there isn't anything about who the Father is and how you can relate to him that you don't understand. God chases after us. And when you woke up this morning, when you wake up tomorrow, when you woke up every day the rest of your life, God's going to be after you. And i got to tell you, it can relieve a lot of stress when you think that the supreme being in the universe is chasing after you to be with you today. But this characterization of Jesus, of God, as, as goodness and mercy, as goodness and faithful love, or, is, is a part of the way that God tells us who he's going to be as he chases after us. He tells us what he's going to do. He also tells us who he's going to be as he does it. Now, these terms, goodness and mercy, are, are so defined by who God is that it's almost impossible to define them apart from God. You know, it's kind of like saying, well, you know, a circle is kind of like a lot like a circle. You know, I mean, it, it, because God's the one who defines what it really means to be good. God's the one who defines what it really means to be merciful. Your goodness is, is such an indelible part of his character. It's, it's kind of like white, you know. You, how, do you, you can, how do you take white out of white? You just can't. It's just white, you know. And like my shirt, my Rwanda dress shirt. 
I bought this in Rwanda, so that's why it kind of looks a little funny. And, uh, you know, the goodness, the rightness, the truthfulness, the, the honor, the, 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 the desire of God to do what's best for us, to be true, that's all embedded into his goodness for us. He also says he's going to be merciful. He's going to have this faithfulness to us, this loving kindness that we're going to experience. You know, um, yesterday as, as, as exercising, I was listening to some music on my, on my MP3 player. You know, and I was listening to the Newsboys. You know, and their song is, you know, it's a good thing when you don't get what you deserve. Remember that? That may be ancient songs, but I'm getting old, you know. And, and it's a good thing when you don't get what you deserve. That's called mercy. And it's a good thing when you do get what you don't deserve. That's called mercy. God says that when I come after you, I'm going to be coming with goodness and I'm going to be coming with mercy. And, and the way, I, you know, how, how do you picture that? I, I, you know, I don't know. The, the, the example that stood out to me as I thought it reflected about all the stories is, is how God dealt with Jonah and the Ninevites. I mean, some of you know that story. You know, Jonah was a prophet. The Ninevites were the enemy of God's people. They had been instruments that God had used to bring punishment upon the people of God. They had a deep hatred for these people. They wanted to separate from them. And God called Jonah, the prophet, to go proclaim judgment to the Ninevites. And Jonah knew God well enough to know that if the Ninevites heard the message and repented, that God was going to have mercy on them. So Jonah didn't want to go. And he tried to run. And God brought him back. And he went to the Ninevites. And the scripture says that he spent the first day marching a third of the way into the city. It took him all day to get there. And he's proclaiming the judgment of God. And, and the people repent. They hear the judgment. They see their sinfulness. And they respond to the God who's chasing after them. And God grants them mercy out of his goodness. What does Jonah do? He pouts. I mean, that's exactly what he does. He pouts. He's a spoiled brat. He says, I told you, I hate this. You know? and, he said, and he goes outside the city and plops down and says, I'm just going to sit here and see what you do. And God doesn't do anything. He doesn't bring judgment on the people. Because he's acted in goodness and mercy towards them. What does he do with Jonah? He acts in goodness and mercy towards Jonah. He's trying to teach him. He's trying to work in Jonah's life for his best eternal interest. So he brings up a plant to give Jonah shade. And Jonah is so pleased by the shade because it's wicked hot. you know. And he's glad to have the shade. And then the next day, the plant dies. And Jonah is just frying out there. God's trying to teach him how much he values people. And how much he values Jonah. God's goodness and mercy means that God will work in our lives every single day according to our best eternal interests. Now notice how I phrase that. Our best eternal interests. This is not necessarily the same thing as a pain-free, joyful, no problems, always healthy Always got a great job, life. That's not, the, that's not what God's promising us. God's promising that he's always going to work in our lives according to our best eternal interests. God is always going to be shaping us for his best. So this 
divine being of the universe is chasing us after us every single day, seeking to work in our lives to prepare us for what? For the future. And how does God describe that future? He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God tells us right up front what our destination is. And, and, and clearly here in Psalm 23, it is the picture of the destination of what happens, the eternal destination of those who respond to God's activity in their lives, God, who, who, who respond to God's pursuit after them by their faith in Jesus Christ. He says those folks are going to experience eternity in the house of God. Remember in John chapter 14, where the disciples were really beginning to understand that Jesus was actually leaving? And he said to them, you know, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are, are, in my Father's mansion are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. The imagery is like Jesus is going to turn down the sheets and put the mint on the pillow. So he's ready for you. He's going to prepare a place for you. So that you can come and be where I am. That's the promise that God makes to us. That's the eternal destiny to us. I mean, if you want a better description of where, what it's going to be like, just listen to this description, this vision that God gives the Apostle Paul in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. And just ask yourself as I read this, is this a place where you want to live? Is this, is this, would you like this to be the address on your return envelope for eternity? I'm just going to pick up in the 18th verse. And there are some words in here I can't pronounce, so just bear with me, all right? Don't laugh at me, just laugh underneath your breath, all right? So that way it won't, embar- it won't, won't disturb anybody else. You know, he's talking about the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where we're going to dwell. He says, the building materials of its walls was jasper. No sheetrock, no two-by-fours, just jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And I doubt it has any potholes in it either. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation had jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian. What is carnelian? Anybody know what that is? I don't know. The seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Individual, each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The broad street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a sanctuary in it, because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city doesn't need it, the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will enter into it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Not a bad address, huh? The Scripture also teaches us that 
Besides this promise of an eternal destiny where we get to live in the city where the streets are paved with gold and the foundations are made with, with the, just the precious gems of the earth. Where God, itself, God himself provides the light by which we live. A place where we no longer need sleep. A place where we no longer need to seek God because he's just everywhere all the time. He's the sanctuary in which we dwell. For those who have not responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. By faith, the scripture is just as clear what their eternal destiny is. In John chapter 3, where Jesus is having this famous dialogue with Nicodemus, where he he in verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the, the verse that's always shined up, if you will, at the football stadiums, you know, 316, John 316 goes on from there to say, For God did not send His Son into the world, that He might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. God desires for nobody to be condemned. His desires He pursues is for everyone to come to a believing faith in Christ. But if they don't, the Scripture says that they have condemned themselves already. And there's many ways that the Scripture describes their eternal destination. But maybe as succinct as any is it's a place that's known for all of the weeping and gnashing of teeth that take place. So we have this universal being over all of the of the the most supreme being who's chasing after us calling us into relationship with himself working with his goodness and mercy to shape us so that we can spend eternity with him in heaven and that's our future experience but it's always healthy to ask the scriptures so what now that i know the truth how is that supposed to change who i am How is it supposed to affect what I do? I think that's a great question to ask of this entire series. You know, we've been working through Psalm 23 for these last weeks, and many of you have been memorizing it, so it's there as a a, uh, real-time spiritual resource to you in your daily walks. And we've looked at the issue of worry, and how God, as He portrays Himself to us as the shepherd who puts us in a place where we do not want, He challenges us to confront ourselves with His faithfulness in our lives and to drive out those issues of worry from our lives. When we think about all the busyness and the stress that it creates in our lives, God has simply said, you know, you only need one master of your calendar. That's me. Let me lead you beside still waters. Let me make you lie down in green pastures. Come aside for some sacred negligence and have your soul restored. Says when you're struggling with a big decision, remember I'm more concerned about it than you are because my namesake is at stake. And if you'll just listen, I'll always lead you in the paths of righteousness. When things get hard and you're walking through that valley that seems like death is just around the corner, don't worry. I'm right there with you. And my rod and my staff They're going to protect you. And there's nothing that can happen to you in your earthly journey that's going to change anything that matters for eternity.
And when life gets really hard because of relationships and you feel like the enemies have kind of mounting up around you and there's been great damage done to you, remember that I'm ready to lay out a banquet table in the presence of all your enemies and to welcome to you as one of the triumphant ones to my table. I'm ready to anoint your head with oil and have your cup overflows. And, 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 and I'm ready, so ready to dilute all of that pain with just an overwhelming dose of my joy and presence in your life. And when you think about the future, because that's where you're going to spend the rest of your life, I'm already there. I'm going with you there. And I know how the story turns out if you'll just walk with me. We have to respond to this in our lives. And I think our response will determine whether we are, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. We can be troubled because when we let worry kind of take over us, we, we have a tendency to want to grab things back and we want to find our own solutions. We want to do it our own ways. We, we trust in worldly securities or, or whatever. We find a way to do it on our own without God when our hearts are troubled. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And as we believe in the re- reality of the future that God brings to us, as Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians 15 and all of the, the stuff that relates with the resurrection and the assurance that goes with it, he said they become steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And here's the challenge that I have for you today spiritually. Many of you have heard the majority, if not all, of the, the, the sermons from this series. And I believe it's time for us to make some kind of a commitment. Uh, maybe you struggle more with worry than you do with busyness. Maybe it's more about pain than it is difficult times. Maybe the future seems really good to you, but you're struggling with, 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 with other kinds of issues. You know, like, Whatever it is, God's got a solution for it. And the choice we make will determine whether our hearts are troubled or whether our hearts are at peace. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, is Christina's going to come in just a moment and sing a, a solo for us. And, and I'd love for you to get out your connection cards and on the back side where we indicate responses, I'd love for you just to, to write down, this is what I need to do to be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord in response to God's provision for the things that produce stress in my life. And, and, and I'm not, I don't even want to try to guide you where you can go. Certainly, it starts with a step of faith. And there's a place in that card to say, I want to choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to learn what all this forgiveness and mercy and love is and how it is that I can have a relationship with God. Check that off. There's other places in there. Within, but what is it that God's saying? If somebody says, oh, you know, I'm going to write this down. I don't know who's going to see it. And it might be. But listen, we only give it to the people who are the most dedicated prayer warriors in the life of our church. And if you can't trust these people to bring it before God's presence, you can't trust anyone. And while I did, so as Christina sings, I want you just to sit and to reflect and then respond to God. And then when we're done with that, we'll stand and do our traditional celebration songs at the end and receive our offering, and you can place your cards in the, in the plate at that time. So let me lead in prayer as, as she comes and prepares us to sing. God, when Joshua was summarizing all that he had 
said and taught and shown to the people over his years of leadership as they moved into the promised land, he was able to clearly articulate to the people that what you were doing was setting before them life or death. The choice literally from them was to choose life or to choose death. God, you have set before us today the choice, the possibility, your heart's desire for us to experience life. Not to live our lives as troubled people whose hearts are unsettled and we're always looking for some, some new solution to fix what's, what we think is wrong in our lives. Where we're trying to take things into our own hands and act out of our own wisdom. God, you offer us an antidote to that, which is to believe in the eternal shepherd who guides us every day into places of rest and restoration and fullness, who shows us exactly what's right to do at every moment, what's in agreement with righteousness. You give us the opportunity to believe in a God who stays with us through the darkest times and who heals us and floods us with joy in the most difficult of moments. The God who's constantly chasing after us so that you might welcome us into an eternity that you've prepared before the foundation of the world. God, let our hearts today not be troubled. Let us believe in you and act in that belief and to believe in your Son. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.